and welcome to the Sunday Show Podcast. I'm your host, Raji Sohal. We had great guests on the show today talking about the news that matters to you in BC. Imagine riding a bike and a car hitting you and you, the cyclist, get stuck with the bill of damage to their car. That's what happened to one Vancouverite and we talked to him and the lawyer representing him. And Port Moody has a new redevelopment project that one critic says needs to contain affordable housing units. But up first, local Ukrainians continue to meet every weekend in Vancouver to demonstrate their support for Ukraine. Well, today at 1 p.m. at the Vancouver Art Gallery, there is going to be a laydown protest for Ukraine. And here to talk about this is Yulia Shokaluk. She's the organizer of the protest. Good morning, Yulia. Good morning, everybody. Well, uh, before we get into it all, it's raining today. So will the, the laydown protest happen or will either it just be, you think, moved to standing? You know what? Uh, the weather is also sort of against us, but uh, we are definitely going ahead with a plan. Um, we have urged everybody to bring in coverings. So hopefully... Rain or shine, we have to be there. Of course you you have. No no, uh, stepping back from this. That's wonderful. I think that you're still going ahead with it and asking people to be prepared. Yulia, can you tell me about your connection to Ukraine? Um, So I am Ukrainian. I've immigrated to Canada um, at an early age um, when I was 15. But I have family in Ukraine. My father's in Ukraine. My cousins, my uncles, friends co-workers um so i have very much first-hand connection to ukraine and everything that's going on there where is your father so they are in the western part of ukraine which is considered to be fairly safe um so i can say that as, as sad as it sounds that's pretty lucky and you said you came here when you were 15 have you been back since uh, yes, I normally go back to visit uh, at least once a year, but um, with COVID, I haven't been able to go for the past two years now. Yeah. And with war, uh, who knows when that's going to happen now. Yeah, even just that statement with war, I mean, I can hear it in your voice and I hear it in the voices of everyone I've talked to who is Ukrainian. From your perspective, Yulia, is interest and support for Ukraine waning or growing at this point? I feel like it is definitely kind of uh, waning down because it's not news anymore. You know, people who are dying in Ukraine is not breaking news anymore, unfortunately. So, and then people who are Ukrainian uh, are also kind of draining down because they are doing everything that they can in their power to bring about um, everything that's going on back at home, volunteering, you know, gathering supplies to be sent, um, preparing to welcome the internally displaced people that are coming here. And uh, we feel like it's kind of losing that traction, but Mm. the people are still dying and the war is still happening and it's, it's not getting better. How are you feeling, Yulia? Um, You know what? I feel like I've this, this last month, um, sometimes I don't know what day it is anymore, but I definitely know it's we're on 39th day of war. Um, And then, Sleep is 
kind of the luxury, but then I think about everybody who's sitting in the bomb shelters who don't even have the luxury to go to the washroom or to have drinking water. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to, to stay, you know, calm and collected and to bring about the message, but uh, it's definitely hard. Well, and you're taking action, which a lot of people agree is the way to find hope when you do feel helpless. So tell us about this laydown protest. What is it? Why do you think it's an effective way to protest? Um, so we've been having protests uh, week upon week, and we just want to make a little bit more of an impactful statement, a little bit more of a, a picture, I should say. Um, it is not an, an original idea. Protests like these have been happening in Europe um, with the original one starting in Poland. And it gives off that very nice visual of people lie down in, in silence in, in the city square that is heavily populated because this is what's happening in Ukraine in the occupied cities. There, there There's just bodies, mass graves of people. And we just want to give that powerful visual for everybody that's kind of passing by and everybody that is kind of willing to see and uh, to listen to our story that we in Canada are so lucky to live here in this um, free democratic world where people in Ukraine are dying, children are being killed, women, innocent people who haven't asked for it. And what is support like, would you say, from non-Ukrainians for, for the protests? Are they taking, um, are they participating? You know, I'm very, very proud of um, Canadians um, and the strength that they've shown and for with our ally, other ethnical communities. Um, they come out week to week um, to support. Um, they are willing to listen to the news, learn about what's going on. So we are very humbled by the support that we see from, again, non-Ukrainians, but Canadians and other allies. But it would definitely be better if it was more. You know, as, as sad as it sounds, we, we definitely want to see a little bit more of um, that and what are you seeing on social media? Just because we know that social media is such a big part of how people communicate uh, what they're feeling uh, during these times. Um, well, social media is where we communicate uh, all the time right now. Um, if you look at, for example, my personal Instagram account, um, my stories are all now filled with the events that are going in, going on in Ukraine with with everybody sharing what they're feeling and what they're trying to do and uh, what they're doing within like their little clusters. And, you know, it's supposed to be sometimes a place where you go and maybe rest a little, look at some fun stories, look at some jokes. But right now, based on my connections, it's turning out to be a little bit more of a information place and a little bit more of a, a ways for people to cry out and showcase their feelings. So, yeah. And at this stage, what do you want non-Ukrainians to know? Uh, we just want to know that this is not over, that Ukrainians didn't ask for it. Um, we shouldn't be fighting for our freedom because we had our country. Uh, we don't want children to be dying. We don't want women to be dying. We don't want all these 
10 million internally displaced people coming here and then what we what we have is a, a big chunk of them are going to be coming to Canada so we want Canadians to know that the people that are coming here they they're hurt they're going to be emotionally hurt um, with probably with some mental health uh, conditions um, and we just we just want help and understanding Yulia Shokaluk, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you. Port Moody residents will get a chance to weigh in on a massive redevelopment plan to transform a neighbourhood near the Coquitlam border. However, not everyone is happy with the development. Haven Lerbecki wrote an opinion piece in the Tri-City News on why this development proposal is not affordable housing. She joins us now on the line. Good morning, Haven. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, Haven, why are you not satisfied with the redevelopment plan in Port Moody? Sure. So, this proposal uh, by West Group is looking to turn an area that is currently about 59 uh, single-family homes into a massive redevelopment, as you mentioned. Uh, Back in 2017, our community went through an extensive planning process about what we wanted that community to look like. This development proposal is 50% greater than what the community ever agreed to with density. But with that level of increased density that they're asking for, there's not been one unit of affordable housing committed to by the developer. Not one. I just think that is unacceptable. So what happened with the increased density? You mentioned that it was kind of a surprise. Well, again, I mean, developers can come forward with whatever they like for proposals. So I wouldn't say it's a surprise that developers asking for more than the community agreed to. But what is a surprise is when a developer comes forward and asking for that substantial level of increased density and the impacts on our community. I mean, of course, when you have increased density, you have to look at your roadway networks, your park systems, um, you know, what kind of jobs are coming in and what kind of housing are we actually building? Port Moody has a housing needs report like other municipalities we've had to create. And it tells us very clearly what what we need to be building. We need to have affordable and accessible homes for families, for seniors, for those with low income. And for development, again, of this size of 50% more dense to not be providing those amenities and affordable housing units. Again, it just doesn't make sense to me. Another thing that's important to mention is that Port Moody has a policy for affordable housing that all large developments should have a minimum of 15% of those units being affordable. And again, this substantial massive development proposal has none. Okay, so then is it in violation? So our policy, from my understanding, is an an interim policy. It's not mandatory, and I think that's half the problem. It's up to council to enforce that policy currently. Um, But if they're not going to treat it like it is mandatory, then then that's how we get this type of situation. I think, you know, we have another uh, development that just was recently approved, Woodland Park. That development is, is almost as big as this one, but it came up. From the beginning, with affordable housing, a large affordable housing component, that developer showed that they were serious about working to provide our community uh, affordable housing. And again, Coronation Park has not demonstrated that. And what have you heard from Coronation Park, from the developers, about why they chose to not include any affordable housing in, let's mention that number again so people are aware, 2,665 units. That's a lot of new units. Exactly. 
Exactly. And I think another important point is, is when we're talking that 50% density, it's only over 75% of the originally envisioned site. So just to give you an idea of scale here, if anyone's been to Port Mooney, Newport Village is, is um, about 900 units. So we're talking three times the number of units of Newport Village with, with no affordable. You know, the developer has tried to say this is some sort of trade-off that we have to accept as a community, that they can only give us parks and job spaces instead of or, or um, besides, you know, affordable housing. And it just isn't true. Like, I think we can't forget here that developers are a for-private, for-profit industry. And it's up to our council, of course, to understand that and to make sure that they're pushing for the needs of our community when we look for any, uh, look at any development proposals. In my opinion, if we have a policy of 15% affordable units and a proposal doesn't have that from the get-go, the answer should just be no. That's the type of strength I think we need from our council to make sure that our housing needs are actually addressed. Okay, yeah, and you did mention that it's it's taken place before, the affordable housing being included in a development, in a new development. So you were, I guess, were you expecting for the new development at Coronation Park to include it? Absolutely. Um, not to get too technical, there's some arguments like, oh, when, when do you talk about that? Of course, a community has an official community plan. And if you want to make a change to this plan that we had, I think I mentioned in 2017 is when we set our plan for this neighborhood. This development developer is asking for us to change that plan. Some are arguing, oh, that's not the time to be talking about affordable housing. You should do it later down the road, basically after it's already in the approval stages at rezoning. I completely disagree with that. Again, if, if a developer is coming forward with this level of density, this huge of an ask of our community, they absolutely should be able to commit to affordable housing at this time, not some far off promise in the future. Our community needs to know now. Okay, Haven, and some people in that neighborhood, some people may be even interested in purchasing in that redevelopment, uh, might be themselves NIMBYs, the not-in-my-backyard people, those folks who say, uh, I don't want affordable housing in my development. Um, and those people I pointed out earlier in our show may be um, saying that for different reasons. Maybe they are older, uh, they've gotten used to their habits and uh, don't want to mix uh, with others that they feel are not in the same bracket as them. And maybe they are uh, young families who are worried about what what would happen if um, you know some people in the in the development were um, of a different ba- uh, background economically? What do you what do you say to all that? You know, when I hear that term thrown around, I, I mean, sure, there might be a, a few odd person that feels some of the things you're saying, but to be frank, I find that term to be highly uh, offensive to people that that have legitimate concerns about their community, um, which is just not myself, it's many others. Again, when you have a development of this size coming in, you mentioned over 2,600 units, um, there are going to be impacts to that. And as a community, we need to be asking what those impacts are. And most importantly, we need to be asking what kind of housing we're, built, we're building. So when I've talked to, to other people in the community, that's their concern. Again, we have our housing needs report. We know what we need to be building housing for, for families, for seniors, for people on lower income spectrums. Um, and how is Coronation Park supporting that or helping to address the housing crisis that we know we're all in? Um, again, how are we going to support our road networks, our, our 
parks. How are we taking a whole community approach as a, as a small community of Port Moody? So again, I do not think that, that quote, NIMBY is, is something that is driving the concern around this project. I think these are legitimate concerns from people that care about the future of their community and want to welcome people to our community. But we have to be asking, again, what kind of housing are we building? Um, and is it for people that actually need housing? So interesting. Thank you, Haven, for being on our show. Thanks for having me. A Vancouver cyclist is speaking out over a $3,700 bill he says he got from ICBC after he was hit by a vehicle while riding on a bike route last summer. Ben Bolliger told Global News he was struck by a driver who ran a stop sign while cycling. He joins us now with lawyer Joel Zanetta. First of all, good morning to you both. Good morning. Ben, I'm sorry you were struck by a car. That just sounds awful. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like many of us over the course of the pandemic, I was working from home that day. Uh, I, I jumped on my bike to head to Granville Island. I live really close to VGH, so it's not far to pick up some lunch. And less than 200 meters uh, from my house, I was struck by a vehicle that ran a stop sign. So I was thrown to the opposite side of the intersection and then, uh, you know, sustained some pretty serious injuries. My right arm was decimated. I will never have full range of motion again. And my bike was snapped, literally snapped in half. Wow. And then what happened? Uh, Well, recovery has been slow. This happened in July. Uh, and dealing with ICBC is a, it is not the most straightforward of processes, that's for sure. Uh, so I was really surprised last week when I received a bill uh, for $3,700 to uh, cover the insured, uh, the driver who hit me, his uh, damage to his vehicle. And as ICBC points out in the letter, I was, uh, in their words, driving an uninsured vehicle at the time. So I am uh, responsible for the loss. Were you expecting this bill? No, absolutely not. I mean, uh, it, it is absolutely flabbergasted. I'm stunned. It just seems so totally wrong that, you know, the insurance regime we're in somehow views a bike uh, which is a vulnerable road user like a pedestrian as a, an uninsured vehicle. I mean, it's just, I'm totally stunned. I think a lot of people who have come across this story uh, in the news were surprised um, as well. Joel, you're a lawyer who deals with biking cases. What was your interpretation of, of this bill when it came? I have seen it before, firstly. Um, I am I'm forever shocked at the way that, that the ICBC and its adjusters are assessing fault for claims. There's no financial incentive for them to be fair. Uh, in a case like Ben's, it's almost unquestionable that the young uh, novice driver who hit Ben and changed his life forever was responsible for the accident. But uh, the ICBC adjuster took a prejudicial approach and said, no, we're going to um, blame the cyclist. Ben hasn't even gotten into the fact that they didn't repair his bicycle or replace it. It was completely devastated. And they didn't compensate him for any of his injuries because they uh, have changed the law to say they don't have to do that anymore. 
So it's just been, for me, it's been an endless source of frustration. I'm fighting for cyclists every day, and I just, I I can't understand how uh, this is possible. So the driver, I, I was reading this from the news, he ran a stop sign. Isn't that correct? Correct. Okay, so that's a little bit of a shock to people that a driver can run a stop sign, hit a cyclist, and the cyclist is at fault because the cyclist's vehicle isn't insured. If Ben had been a pedestrian struck by someone running a stop sign, would things look differently? The answer is, is it depends. So in Ben's case, what they did is they said, well, you're partly at fault, uh, cyclist, because the driver has said, in spite of there being witnesses, the driver told ICBC that he did not run the stop sign. But you may recall a case of a woman and a, a man and his, his baby. The, the, the young girl was killed in front of the Boston Pizza downtown. Right. That was a pedestrian yeah. uh, struck. It's the same thing. Vulnerable road users got no benefit from this shift to a no-fault care-based system, and they take all the responsibility. It's carnage when you hit a cyclist or a pedestrian. Oh, yeah. Cyclists who get struck. Uh, I mean, the experience itself is traumatizing. They often incur major injury. Um, But you stated, uh, Joel, that you've seen this happen before. Correct. How common is it? It's not the first sight. Yeah, it's it's becoming an epidemic uh, internally with ICBC. They have they don't have a deep understanding of the rights of cyclists. They don't have a deep understanding of bike routes and the fact that these are actual lanes. And if you, you can't park a car in them or take a right turn across a bike lane um, and, and they regularly say, you know what, we're going to go 50-50. And that way um, they can collect against the, the, the cyclist or the pedestrian or whomever it is. And then they can send them a bill. It's, it's inappropriate. So, Joel, you're representing Ben in this case, correct? Correct. And what do you hope to achieve? Well, it's the, the frustrating thing is, is I'm doing it on a pro bono basis because he, realistically, Ben can't sue for personal injury damages anymore. He's lost that right with this change to no fault. The best he can get is he can get them to pay for his, his darn bike, which they should have just been absolutely forthcoming with, and to have them withdraw the bill for the car. That's all that Ben can get out of this. So so Ben can't even get damages covered to his life. No, they've removed that. They'll pay for some medical treatment until they deem it uh, no longer necessary, although he's got a permanent lifelong injury. Um, But that's it. And, you know, on that point, uh, I am very fortunate insofar that I have a primary care person, but so many people in British Columbia don't. And if I didn't have a doctor that I could, you know, go to on the regular because, uh, I mean, I'm in pain or uh, I have an issue associated with this, I would be really at a disadvantage. I would have no one uh, there to support me through this uh, recovery because under this enhanced care plan, ICBC says that after 12 weeks from your accident, at that point, uh, they rely on a doctor's note for any sort of ongoing treatment. I was so badly injured that I had an external fixation device, though not a cast, 
but I had metal rods drilled into my hand for eight weeks. So I'm not going to be going to, I couldn't start physio until I had a procedure to have that removed. So, I mean, if we left this up to ICBC, um, I mean, I really would have been out of luck 12 weeks after this. You know, a lot of people are going to hear this and they're going to say, okay, uh, you know, with the pandemic, I bought a bike. I wanted to get out there more, move my body. That's what the provincial health orders told us to do. We've got new bike lanes in place. I'm not going to spend as much on my car. I'm going to get out there and use these lanes. They might hear this story and think twice, no? It's so sad. I I certainly have been... you know, I will approach cycling and using the road in a very different way. And that might be getting, uh, you know, a camera for my bike. I know that those are available and out there. Uh, but no matter what happens with my case, you know, there has been considerable attention. The leader of the Green Party of BC has reached out. She's raised this at committee. Uh, the Minister of Infrastructure, Bowen Ma, has reached out. She has said that she's certainly going to look into this matter, too. So, you know, whatever happens in my case, if we can change, make some real structural changes to the way that ICBC approaches these cases, that would be a win for everyone. Joel, 30 seconds here. Any last thoughts? We need uh, to protect cyclists. They need the ability to sue for damages. Or we need vulnerable road user legislation that says if you hit a pedestrian or a cyclist, that they're covered. It's, it's not fair to leave these people bearing a huge cost for this care system that ICBC has incorporated. It's, it's completely irresponsible. Joel and Ben, thank you so much for sharing this story with us this morning. Thank, thank you. For your time. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.